Well, good morning once again. Uh, welcome again to our folks online. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started a new series, so it's not so new anymore. It's called uh, Strange New World. I must tell you from uh, recent memory, I can't think of a time where there's been more conversation and discussion about something we're talking together about on the weekend than this particular series. It seems that this is where we're all living. Uh, it's an interesting world, isn't it? If you're uh, like new to the world, it isn't all that strange. It's what you know. But for those of us that have been around for a little while, it all just seems really strange. It's, it's different for us. And that's actually the majority of us. Even if you've, uh, this is the world you've been kind of born into. Uh, as I talk to young adults, uh, they'll t- just something doesn't seem right. You know, it's, it's no doubt the pandemic had an effect on us around the world in here too. I mean, when you're isolated for that period of time and uh, can't go to work and just all that went with it, it affects us. It does. And I think we see the, the results. That's just not me. I think that's the general consensus. But it turns out it isn't just the pandemic and all that that did for us. It, it certainly maybe shadows some of these other things. Um, but, you know, when you've got geopolitical hotspots around the world, uh, that each week, as we see in Ukraine and uh, in Russia, it just seems to get amped up every week. And, and then, like, nuclear weapons actually become part of the discussion. That's a little disturbing. Uh, the kind of convulsive economic world that we've been in, from a rocket ship to, you know, prosperity that'll never end, to uh, stock market crashing and uh, storm clouds of recession and those kinds of things, just like the pivoting back and forth. That's interesting. And then, as we've been talking about recently, is uh, the sexual revolution, where uh, the normalization of transgenderism and homosexuality within our culture and the, rep- the rapidity with which that's happened is just mind-spinning. Uh, the level of promiscuity that's there, it's just been normalized. And that's different for us. It's a strange new world. I have talked to so many parents the last couple of weeks who have tried to have conversations with kids that uh, have come out and just the struggle that that is to have that conversation because they get an entirely different message in the world that they live in, in the schools they go to. But it's, you know, it's, it's other things that, you know, movements here and here, here's what happens in a world like this. There are extremes, extreme ideologies that start to start to develop and we align ourselves with it. Why does all that happen? Well, sociologists and psychologists will tell us that it has something to do with fear. The, uh, the level of fear, the, uh, the, the, uh, the frequency with which psychologists uh, deal with people who are struggling in this world because of fear that's in their life, like fear what's going to happen, fear of the difficulty, fear of the strange new world. Uh, they'll tell us that that's like a pandemic in itself. Like it is just spreading. Those things that we used to have a rational thought about and go, well, that's nothing to be afraid of. Now the default or the pattern is to start with fear. It just seems like you're, like we're punch drunk with all the things that have come for so long that the first place we go, oh, that's one more bad thing. That's one more thing that's not going to go right. That's one more thing that's going to create chaos in my world. And what psychologists are telling is the starting point now is fear. In the processing of what's happening, fear is the first thing that people experience. Well, why does, why does that happen? Uh, 
Well, part of it, we've been looking back over a couple of, in a very simplistic way over the course of history, where when Jesus came into this world and gave his life, died, and came back to life again, this Christian movement in our world was all around a resurrected Savior, and that was the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then as happens, and it happens regularly, is a group of people kind of hijack that message, and they make it their own, and then they think of themselves as the source of truth, and that became the church over the course of a thousand or so years. Well, that didn't work really well for people because the church abused it. And then people said, well, let's just do it ourselves. We can think this thing through. These world problems that we have, we can reason it away. We have solutions. We're really smart people. We don't need the church in that message. We can do it. And then that didn't work out. And all that's left now is if that institution that should, we should have trust in fails, and then our smartest people can't figure it out, I guess I'll take care of it myself. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And then we became the center of our lives, the center of truth. And in our culture recently have said, yes, you do you. And whatever you think is right for you, however you feel about things, that's true. And so you live that way. So here's, that can work for a while till the problems are bigger than what I can handle. And then since I'm responsible for figuring it out, but it's more than I can figure out what's left other than fear because I can't handle it. It's too much for me. And this is the world that we apparently live in. And, but this is our world. This is the world that God in his sovereignty said, it's your time. I'm going to put you in the world at this time. And you get to live with me and for me if you choose. I will not make you do that, but you can. And if you will, we'll go through this together because I know about a strange new world. When he came from heaven to earth, that's a pretty strange new environment, really. He knew about a strange new world. And yet, isn't it remarkable how in the short course of three or so years of public ministry, it becomes the hinge point of human history? And he says, now, why don't you become the hinge point of human history with me in that? So this strange new world, we may not like it, but it's our world, and we have to figure out how to live in it. But here's the thing. You and I are susceptible to fear as well, right? Oh, I'm, I'm the only one, I guess. <laughs> no, we are. Because we've been influenced by this idea, if it's, it's going to be, it's up to me. And into that whole mix, we go, well, I think I might be just about as afraid as my neighbors and schoolmates. Well, we go, how can that be? How is it that I can be so afraid when regularly, consistently, the Bible says this, like over and over again, fear not. Someone has said there's like 365 fear nots. I don't know if that's the case. Google it. Might be right. I don't know. So don't be afraid as if to say, okay, suck it up. Be an optimist. Like you're a follower of Jesus. You should just like, don't be afraid. And how does that work? It's not working. Why doesn't it work? When we have somebody in the Old Testament, Isaiah, like a preeminent prophet, voice of God says, you know, fear not for I am with you, speaking on behalf of God. Or last fall, if you remember, we did a whole eight or nine week series on Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, where David gets to the place and he knew about difficult circumstances. He says, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where there's trouble and chaos all around, I will not be afraid because you're with me. So why are we afraid if he's with us? 
Here's why. Because it isn't always obvious that he's with us. There are times where he seems distant. Have have you ever found yourself saying, God, you've forgotten. Somehow you must have forgotten about me. Because what I'm going through is just like, it's just created paralyzing fear in me. You see, when fear comes along for us and we're not really that sure that God is with us, it forces us to the extremes. It forces us into, you know, fleeing or fighting or being frozen, kind of paralyzed. Can I give you an example? Pandemic. What's the deal with the toilet paper run? Like, that's not nothing to be afraid of, right? Like, if there's a rattlesnake coiled up rattling, be afraid. It's a good thing. It'll prevent you from some nasty effects. But if the shelves don't have toilet paper on them, don't have to be afraid. How do we know the difference here? Well, maybe we've fallen into a pattern that we see in our culture around, as I said, psychologists and psychiatrists would say, that's now been the starting point. Can I take you to a passage of scripture we anchored this all on? In many ways. Here we go. It's Romans. This is what Paul, one of the, the preeminent leaders of the early church, writing to some friends in Rome who were in a new, strange, strange new world. Not because their world was different, but they were different. Their worldview had changed around Christ, and now they're living in that world. And Paul says to me, hey, friends, friends, don't conform to the pattern of the world. I wonder if this pattern of fear and the habit of fear and the default of fear is a pattern that he might reference. And he would turn to us as followers of Jesus and say, don't follow that pattern. There's an alternative. Rethink the whole deal. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think it over again. Think about this. Who is God? Who is Jesus in the world? What's he like? Is he big enough? Is he strong enough? Does he, does he get involved? Does he know your name? Does he call you by your first name? Rethink, establish who for you is Jesus, is the God of the universe. What's he like? That's a reshaping of your thinking. And when you do that, it says you're actually going to be able to attest and approve what God's will is. You're going to be able to figure out in this strange new world, how do I live? I want to make a statement. And it's this statement. As much as all that fearful stuff going on is real, here's another real thing. You and I, if we're followers of Jesus, right in this moment of chaos, we are in the safest possible place we could be. The safest possible place we could be. If we're followers of Jesus, no harm can come to us. Hurt can, but not harm. Not ultimate harm. Now, when I say that, you might be tempted to roll your eyes and go, yeah, really, it doesn't work that way for me because I don't feel safe. Yeah, so what would it look like to renew, renew your mind, to think again about Jesus, to consider that all over again? We are in the, we are in the safest possible place with Christ. So why isn't that obvious? Well, because he's not always obvious. Do you know that he's present all the time? The Bible says that. That's not my opinion. Don't, don't like, ever listen to my opinion on something. Just go to the Bible, okay? But the Bible says he's ever present. Never. Same writer, Paul. This is what he writes about Jesus. Never will I leave you. How often is never? 
all the time. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Never, 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 never. Okay, so why don't I feel your presence then? If you're here, why can't I experience that, encounter that? I know I'm not going to see you, though he's done that before, right? God comes into this world as Jesus, okay? He's now seen. Paul, the writer once again, would say, well, there was this day on my way to Damascus where I saw Jesus manifest as a human being. So don't count it out. Just don't expect it. But he's present. You just can't see him. That's the only difference. You just can't see him. He's present. So why don't I experience that? There's this wonderful story in the Old Testament. It's taken from 2 Kings, I think it is. It's a season of life for Jerusalem, for Israel, rather, where uh, there are nations all around them that want to take them out, want to wipe them out as a people group. And God protects them. And God gives his voice to his people through prophets, priests, and kings. Well, this is a season of prophets. And one of the prophets that he speaks his voice to the people through is Elisha. And Elisha becomes the voice of the people back to God. He's kind of the intermediary. Well, Elisha knows stuff about an enemy king from Aram and uh, his diabolical scheme to wipe out Israel. And he foils this king's attempts over and over again. And the king finally says, my problem isn't the nation. My problem is Elisha. So I'm going to go find Elisha, and I'm going to take him out because now I've got a strategic advantage over the whole nation. So he finds out that Elisha and his secretary or assistant are holed up in the town of Dotham. And so he decides to send an elite force, chariots, horses, armed people to Dotham. And overnight, under the cover of darkness, they surround this town. And they're going to get Elisha the next day. It's all a wonderful plan. It's going to work out. And this is what happens. When the servant of the man of God, that's the servant of Elisha, got up with his coffee the next day. It doesn't say coffee, but they went out early the next morning. There it was. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Great question. To which Elisha gives this answer. Don't be afraid. Yeah, just, just suck it up. Be positive. Just, it's all going to be okay. <clears throat> Actually, he says, you know, there are those that are with us are more than those who are with them. To which I imagine the secretary going, Elisha, looks like you and me, buddy, against all of them. This is, what do you mean, don't be afraid? Like you keep talking about God being present and God's going to rescue us. Elisha, it's you and me against this elite armed force. To which Elisha says, uh, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots. Sounds like Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? Horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They were there. The servant couldn't see. God needed to open the eyes. So does that mean that if God would miraculously open our eyes, we would actually see the physical body of Jesus alive? No. I mean, it could happen, right? But what it does mean is this, God, would you open my eyes to what the Bible says about Jesus? Would you make that book real? Because it's not just a history book. It's the inspired truth of God. 
given to us to reveal himself and Jesus to us as a people. But if it stays on the shelf, it would just seem foolish to me that it would stay there when that's how Jesus reveals, one of the ways that he reveals himself. We would take it down, we would look at it, and we would say, show me yourself here, Jesus, show me. I'm not just going to read it as a book that I've been told I should read through in a year. I'm going to invite you to open my eyes to what it says here because I want to know you. I want to discover who you are. Would you open my eyes to see what's already there? Sometimes we don't see God because we're not looking for him. We're not seeking for him. Jeremiah says this, fear not. Because if you seek me with all your heart, there's a like a solid 30% chance you're going to find me. Nope. You will find me. You will. So seek. Look. Silly illustration. Okay. Uh, yesterday morning, I was here on campus with Elfie putting up some banners, which you maybe saw around the campus, for Four Peak Challenge. That's Elfie's area that she leads, and I want to support her in that. So we came, and we started putting up signs. And uh, one of the signs required a, a bolt and a nut and a little anchor to keep the, the flag part taut. So I'm putting it together, and all of a sudden, that little quarter-inch nut falls out of my hand and lands in the gravel. I'm not a happy guy. I'm not happy. Because first thing I think of is, oh, shoot. Now I have to go leave this, and I have to go find a quarter-inch hex nut someplace in our facility guy's toolbox or someplace. So I go looking around. I text him, and he goes, well, maybe I do, maybe I don't. I'm not sure. And I'm thinking, oh, man. This means i got to get in my car, drive to Home Depot, and buy a silly quarter-inch hex nut. What a nuisance. What a time waster. I'm just doing this with a good attitude for Alfie. I don't want to do this, but I want to be nice to her. <laughs> so I look around as much as I can, and I don't find it. So I go, oh, okay, forget it. I'll go do some, other, uh, some more of the signs and flags. So I do a few more, and I go, I really don't want to go to Home Depot. I'm going to go look again. So I look, and I scour, and I open my circle a little bit more. I'm looking and looking. I cannot find this nut anywhere. Can't find any on campus. So a little bit frustrated, I go do a few other things, and then I go, one more time, one last time, and this time I pray. <laughs> God, help me find that little quarter-inch nut over here. And guess what I found? Some other person lost a screw. <laughs> right? Not my quarter-inch nut. No. Uh-uh. So we're all wrapped up, ready to go, and I go, I'm going to seek one more time. So I go over to that area, and I looked a little bit bigger, and I found it. Yeah, you could applaud for that. I was. You bet. Silly illustration. I find in my life I am more prepared to search relentlessly for a quarter-inch nut than I am sometimes for Jesus, who wants to be known, who wants to be seen, who wants to be part of our lives, who so wants to reveal himself to us. But do we seek him like we look for other stuff. You know that we always look for what matters to us? We always do. Huh. 
Seek for him. It's the one promise we have. You will absolutely find him every time you seek for him, if you seek him with all your heart. So sometimes our fear is there because we haven't sought who's already there because it's not obvious from the beginning, maybe. Okay, so uh, Jesus, who says like 25 times or something like that to his followers, hey, don't be afraid, fear not, don't be anxious, don't worry, those kinds of things. If that's what he taught, you should be able to see it in his life, right? Should be able to see an example or two where maybe he faced some fear and how did he handle it, right? Or maybe a situation where he and his group were in a, like a dangerous situation and how did they handle it? Well, there's this wonderful story in Mark chapter 4. It's a famous story. Uh, Matthew uh, records it as well in his account of the incident in Matthew chapter 8, so you can compare those. They're somewhat different, a little bit different. Uh, But here's the story. Jesus is in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Capernaum is the little town that he's at. It's kind of his northern headquarters. And at some point, he decides he wants to take a trip across the top end of the lake over to the east shore. This is how it unfolds for us. It says, uh, that day when evening came, so it's evening time, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Stop for just a second. This is the kind of way a story would be told if it really happened. Like little incidental details. Well, there were other boats. It wasn't just one boat. Uh, It was Jesus' idea that we go, and then Peter, who this is recorded in Mark, likely dictated this story to Mark, and this would be Peter's personality. Jesus initiated it, and then Peter took hold of it as if he had done it. So we took Jesus with us. What? No, Jesus said he was going. Well, Mark, you're so, or Peter, you're so insecure, you have to take credit for it. Okay, so take credit. So they're in this boat. They're headed across. It's about a seven-mile or so journey. Take two maybe three, so they were on a three-hour tour. Uh, The first service got that better than you did. I just want you to know that. Okay, so uh, this is what happens. Something changes. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Danger, 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 right? There's a problem here. They're afraid they're going to die. Here's what would happen. Warm water over the Mediterranean would head toward the east. Mount Hermon was just to the north. Cold air would come down, and occasionally those would collide as warm, moist air from the lake would come up. And these spontaneous storms would break out. Now, you have to understand that the Sea of Galilee is not a large lake, and so unlike the ocean where the wind, when it wicks, Florida knows about this stuff, right? When the waves whip up in the ocean, they kind of pattern into the to the shore. Here, because it's small, they're all over the place. So there's, it's really dangerous because you can't go with the waves because they wash over top. Well, this apparently is happening just like this artist would show us here. And so they're in this boat. Wind is blowing 30 to 40 miles an hour, horizontal rain. Water's coming over the side of the boat. They're in peril. They're in danger. And this is what happens. Jesus is asleep in the stern sleeping on a cushion. Okay, stop for just a second. Do you think that's really true? That's actually, you can respond. Do you think that's really true? How do you sleep through that? Come on, let's get real. 
How do you sleep through that? The boat is going up six to eight feet at a time. It's spinning. It's going. It's noisy. 30 to 40 mile an hour wind is noisy. Horizontal rain. The pillow is getting wet. Their faces are sopping wet. Hair stuck to them. You've got 70 degree water coming into the boat and 60 degree temperature. It's cold. They're wet. And Jesus is sleeping. Really? You still believe it? Why would he be sleeping? He was just faking it, wasn't he? I don't know. It says he was sleeping. I think he was sleeping. Why would you sleep? Because you know how it ends. In fact, the ending is in your control. So Jesus, why didn't you stop the storm? Because it isn't a story about storms come up and Jesus meets you in the storm and he'll meet you in your storm. That's not what he's trying to teach here at all. Now, that's true. It's just not what he's trying to teach. So he's asleep in the boat, and the disciples wake him up and say to him, Teacher, don't you care that we drown? Now, this is not... Jesus. Hey, Jesus. Jesus. Sorry to bother you, but like, there's a situation going on here. No, 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 no. This is... i got to turn this... You, you've got to help us. And then, a, like, an offensive question. Jesus, don't you care that we're going to drown? It's not just that we're going to drown. Don't you care? Now, hold on. I don't know about you. Well, I actually do. My guess is, if not all of us, all but one or two of us have had those occasions in life where it's tough, it's difficult, it's challenging, and God should have intervened. He shouldn't have allowed it to happen. The diagnosis shouldn't have come. My child shouldn't have made that decision about their sexuality. All of those things. And we turn to him with the same question, don't you care? Don't you care? Well, of course Jesus cared. He invited them onto his team. They had seen him figure out how to change the molecular structure of water into wine. They had seen him heal fatal diseases and bring people back to whole health. They had seen all that. Matthew, for example, a treasonous traitor, had been invited and welcomed into the gang by Jesus. Of course he loved them. But if you don't know that he loves you, that's the logical outcome. If you don't know that, that's what you think. This is how Jesus responds. He says, so he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, be quiet, be still. In the Greek, if you will, it happened instantly. It wasn't like over 10 minutes, the wind kind of died down and the rain let up and the water kind of calmed down. No, it says it happened instantly. Who does that kind of thing? Well, that's the point. Who does that kind of thing? Who's with them in the boat? That's the point. The wind died down and it was completely calm. And then Jesus has something for them. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Uh, which the answer was, um, did you see the waves? Did you hear the wind? What do you mean, why are we afraid? Of course we're afraid. We thought we were going to die. To which Jesus says, well, 
Do you still not have faith? I love the way Matthew tells this story. Uh, he records Jesus saying, uh, you, you, you guys of little faith. He uses the Greek word oligopistoi, which is, Jesus is the only one that uses it. He's like he made the word up, which is like looking at us and them and going, that was a tough situation, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> You're just a little faith, but give it time. You'll have more faith. Just, I know right now you have this much faith. But if you continue to walk with me and live with me and you let me show my wonder and who I am, you're going to have more faith. It's almost comedic. It's almost such a gentle response to such a terrible question they ask him. And this is the nature of faith with him. Why do you have so little faith? And then this is how the story ends because it's really the point. They were terrified and they asked each other, now, what are they not terrified anymore of? This is the point of the story. The storm. But they're still afraid. What are they afraid of? Who's in the boat with them? Because he's powerful. Because he can stop storms. Because he can rescue. And apparently he can sleep through the whole thing. They're now afraid of him. But it's a different kind of fear. We can deal with fear when fear, I know this is corny, when fear becomes revere. When we know who we are with, when we know the wonder of who God is, when we know his strength and his ability and his love and his greatness, when we know that, you are in awe of him. And when he's that big and he loves that much and he calls you by, his first, by your first name, fear dissipates. You'll never be You'll never get through fear by saying, I'm not going to be afraid. That's a good thing. Fear cannot inhabit the place where a great God is and you know that he's there and he loves you and he's with you. That's what they're afraid of. They're suddenly with one who can control the whole universe who's bigger than their problems and they have to dethrone themselves and put him on the throne. And now fear cannot survive in that. It can't. This is the wonder of this story. I know each weekend there are folks in our gathering who have not yet said yes to Jesus and his offer to take the weight of their sin and their independence from God on their own shoulders. They're, they're learning. They're figuring it out. They haven't got all the information just yet. The sad news of that is with, that you live with a heightened sense of fear that you can't handle on your own, but you're trying to handle it on your own. You see, the promise that Jesus made was that he would come as God into this world and he would take upon himself the weight of your and my sin and independence and he would take that to the cross, pay the penalty for that, so that you and I could have a relationship with the Father. And then to prove that that was not just some hyperbole or some good idea, he comes back to life with validates his promise of what the power of what happened in the cross was. And then he turns to all of us and says, so I'm not asking you just to believe that it happened. History tells you it happened. What I'm asking you is would you, con would you consider 
rethinking the whole thing and stepping away from self-saving, self-righteousing, and just throw in the towel and place the full weight of your destiny and your life in my hands. Because if you do, I will bring the spirit that raised me from death to life to live inside of you. And now God goes from way out there to here to in here. And now he can affect your thinking on the inside. He can take this book and bring it alive and make it real so that when you read it, you go, that's, that's more than history. That's, that's inspiration for me. Now, he doesn't force anybody to make that choice, but he has a wonderful promise if you do. You don't ever have to be afraid because now you too are in the safest possible place you can be because he's, he's here, he's present in my life. So why is it that those of us who would identify as followers of Jesus sometimes don't look any different in terms of fear quotient than those who don't? What's happened? It's the seeking part. It's the looking for him. It's choosing to do life independent. I've got it. I'll figure it out. Uh, It's choosing to not do life with a life group or a group of people around. It's choosing to keep the Bible on the shelf. Do you know that if you don't take this down off the shelf and just like read it and let it infiltrate your mind and thinking, you never will read things like this. Peace I leave with you. This is in the hours before Jesus dies. My peace I give you. You see, I don't give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You'll never hear that. Take the book. Look at it. Read it. Research it. Dig into it. You'll never hear something like this if you don't read it. I have summoned you by name. This is fantastic. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, because you will pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I don't know about you, but I need to fill my mind and my soul with that. Or I'm as susceptible to fear as anyone is. But that's what happens when we take this book with other people and we let that infuse our souls and our hearts. You and I, if we have Jesus in our lives, are in the safest possible place we could be, regardless of the storm out here. So we're going to take a listen and learn from some of Jesus' earlier followers. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Uh, we're told that a couple of, on a couple of occasions, Jesus' followers post his death, resurrection, and ascension as the church was getting its momentum and making a difference in the world, that occasionally uh, they faced prison, like prison, prison, like go to jail, prison, locked up behind bars. In fact, we're told that there's one occasion where two guys were in the inner prison, Okay, so that's not like the outside. That's in this like high security, flight risk, danger to themselves kinds of people. And so they're sitting there because they're followers of Jesus. And, and this is how this, the account goes. About midnight, Paul and Silas, that's the Paul that wrote this, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. 
So what are they doing? Paul, the guy that writes this, Silas, his buddy, going, you know something? We don't know how this ends. But Silas, what do you think, buddy? We're in the safest possible place. So let's fill our minds with hymns. Let's sing to Jesus. Let's remind ourselves that he's here and he's present. That he'll never leave us, never forsake us. Let's sing hymns to our king. And then everybody else who was afraid without Jesus in their life were listening. And they're going, that's just weird. How do you sing hymns? Because he's present. And you have a level of peace that I don't have. Our world is dying to know there's hope and there's peace. And it's going to come through you and me in this world as we live fearlessly because he's present. Would you stand with me and let's sing hymns together.